Good morning. Would you please check and make sure that your cell phone is in the off position? Okay. Uh, I just found out this morning that um, um, somebody who is beloved by many of you in this room, Terry Thompson, who served as Minister of Pastoral Care for St. Paul's for 30 years, has been in ICU. Oh, he got COVID and um, they gave him Paxlovid and he had an allergic reaction to it and then an allergic reaction to everything they gave him in the hospital. And he's just, just uh, maybe today, been released from ICU to go in a private floor. So he's oh at Methodist and I'm sure you want to keep him and Linda in your prayers. And uh, thank those people back there who make it possible for those of you who are watching to uh, watch uh, Ordinary Life being live streamed. Take a bow, folks. <laughs> so let's begin in silence as we do. Just do what is necessary for you to get here. Take a deep breath, put your feet on the floor, be grounded. I came close to making this be something different today, but I'm still using this and I share it with you. Old Gallic prayer adapted for this occasion. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. Um, also, just to remind you of this, and I want this time to contribute to our growing understanding of God's self and ourselves and other people so that we can treat them as the brothers and sisters that they are. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. I had two quick announcements to make. Um, immediately following this gathering today, if some of you would help, move the chairs to the side of the room because we're going to have the gay pride picnic in this space at noon today. Now, if you did not register, there are um, some available lunches if you want to show up after the 12 o'clock service for that. Uh, it's going to be a, a great fun time and I hope you will do that. Um, also, um, after the picnic today, go home, take a quick nap, change out of your ridiculous looking clothes that you will wear to the, I'm just projecting here. You're totally projecting. You know, totally projecting <laughs> yeah. here. And uh, come back at four <laughs> o'clock for St. Paul's Choir's last even song of this, uh, of this season. There won't be another even song until the fall of the year. And, uh, St. Paul's Choir is renowned, and what makes today special is that after that uh, even song today, there will be a reception in the parlor to wish best wishes and farewell to Joel Truckle, our organist. Joel came here as a choral scholar, and then uh, eventually he, be he got hired as to be the organist of the church. He has got an outstanding talent, and he's just really, really good. We're going to miss him a lot, so I hope you come for that event this afternoon and um, say goodbye to Joel. And also, as Callista announced, next Sunday, Roddy Young and I are going to be up here dialoguing about what's on your mind, what's on his mind, whatever. And um, the reason that I'm taking that tack for next Sunday is that I will be preaching both the services at, um, over there, and who knows what that will be. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Ma'am? Can you do magic tricks in the church? I have. I did a Jacob's Ladder one time when I did the story of climbing Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one time a long time ago on a spur of the moment, um, Dr. Bankston was ill and asked me to preach at the last minute and I preached the sermon that got me fired at the seminary. <laughs> He's not in this room today, so I can say that. <laughs> It was great fun. It's always great fun to, to preach in that particular church. Um, and I'm going to use a technique I learned from Harvey Cox uh, in, in that sermon. So some of you know that I have um, been um, calling these talks Love Letters to Modern Mystics. And as far as I can see right now, um, I'm for the foreseeable future going to be teaching about three primary things. I'm going to be teaching about um, our having a growing understanding of what we mean when we use the word God, a growing and evolving understanding of what we mean when we use the word self, referring to ourselves as well as to other people, and to uh, walk a path of, a, of growing awareness illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. This is the goal. And along the way, we may hit some speed bumps, some roadblocks, some detours. And that is precisely what has brought this time um, today into being. I was telling Holly just earlier, I had this thought. You, most of you who listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You know that show on NPR? And they'll have somebody famous. Holly's going to get her Ph.D. this Friday. We, yes. we I do have this like lingering fear that they're just going to like bang the gavel and go, deny. So, you know, they will have somebody famous on NPR and ask them questions that tangentially seem to have something to do with. So I had an issue come up this, this week. I think we had another plan for today, but I got... <laughs> we um, did. You announced it last week, and then you changed it. I changed yeah. it because somebody here, and I'm not going to point out Tom Price, but anyway, <laughs> um, Tom Price brought to my attention um, a man by the name of Timothy Keller. My hunch is nobody in this room has heard of Timothy Keller. Right? Have you? You've heard? You've heard Timothy Keller? Anybody else? There are two people here. Anybody else? You've heard of Timothy Keller? I had never heard of Timothy Keller. He, was, uh, he died, and his obituary or write-up about him was in the New Yorker magazine. And then someone else sent me a piece about Keller that appeared in The Atlantic. And then I was sent a piece about him that was written in The New York Times. And all of these pieces were very positive of Keller. They were expressions of gratitude and praise for him and his work and his graciousness. And um, I'll tell you uh, just a smidgen about Keller. Keller is a was a Presbyterian. As I said, he died of pancreatic cancer. And the Presbyterian denomination asked Keller to go to Manhattan and to start a church. And um, Keller is an evangelical Christian, and he went to Manhattan and started a church that grew to have over 6,000 members and satellite churches around Manhattan as well. Keller is not a Joel Osteen. He was high, he, highly educated, very competent debater, very gracious. He was in a debate with somebody like Christopher Hitchens, and the person he was debating couldn't think about how to make their next point. And Keller said in the debate, is what you're trying to say, da-da-da-da-da, and the, his opponent said, yes. Keller restated his opponent's position to the opponent's satisfaction and then went on to debating. He wrote <laughs> countless books, and it turns out is very highly respected in evangelical church circles. So I asked several of my colleagues here if they had heard of Keller, and the responses I got were either no or uh-huh with a kind of disdain or negative attitude. But I thought, if you, when you die, make 
it to the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and the New York Times. That says something about you. And the people who were writing about him were people like David Brooks and other people. I mean, highly regarded men. So what I, I found out, I started reading him, and what I found out is that Keller is exactly what his admirers claim. He is erudite. He is articulate. He is educated. He is personable. He is engaging. And he's a fundamentalist and a velvet glove. Now, remember last time we talked about in here, what we talked about in here, not last week, but time before last. You remember? <laughs> you know, you're going to get a test on this stuff when you go to heaven, and some of you are just going to squeak by or whatever. We talked about levels of spiritual growth and development, remember, and that the, the obligation that we have more important than the moral obligation to be happy is the obligation we have to psychological and spiritual growth, always to be on a path of growth. And, and we talked about how it's possible for somebody to be very educated in some areas of life and not well-educated in some others or not ha have obtained. So it's possible for people to have all sorts of smarts in all sorts of areas and maybe in some area be arrested at late adolescent development, right? I'm not being critical when I say this, but here's Keller. But he's educated and he's brilliant. And what concerns me, and I'm going to try to speak a smidgen to this next Sunday in the sermon, is uh, one of the three things that really concerns me is the rise of Christian nationalism. And um, that rise is coming from the evangelical side of Christianity. It says this ought to be a Christian nation. Christian values ought to be. But those values are coming from an understanding of <coughs> a certain form of Christianity. So, <clears throat> I got concerned about what I see as our country descending into a black hole. It's not the only one. We have a lot of other things out there that, that are concerning me. And then I remembered some things I had read that Holly has taught in here, to either with me or by herself, about black holes, and I thought, maybe they're not all bad. Maybe we could look at black holes and see what enlightenment we can gain from them, uh, and so um, I brought an expert. Ha. Huh. Let me start with a few things then, because that is not what I am. I'm not an expert on black holes. Um, I'm not an astrophysicist. <laughs> Um, my degree will be in evolutionary cosmology, which is much more like phil the philosophical edge of that, not the uh, astrophysics edge of that. So the two meet where in, in, in asking a lot of questions. The two meet around wonder, and the two meet around exploration. So I'm, I'm not what you say that I am, but I'm going to pretend. And <laughs> I, I also want to offer a caveat that Black holes, we already are in one. They're, they're not these terrible bad things. So Bill has kind of gotten this black hole as I'm going down a spiral. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's not just that, right? So I'm going to disabuse you of the notion that black holes are bad. So everything I'm about to say. Well, that's comforting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Watch out in the back, you're getting sucked in. Um, everything I'm about to say, though, can be taken both literally and metaphorically. And I want you to hold it with both. I'm going to start with a little anatomy lesson. If you understand this, you do not need to be here. You can just get up and walk away. No, don't do that. <laughs> well, they already know everything. I don't understand this, so I brought this. This is a simpler diagram of a black hole. It just has parts that are labeled, with not equations. <laughs> um, so the outermost edge of a black hole, and I realize that the, our screen is not as big as, I, as it once was, so you probably can't read all of this, but if you just look at the outermost edge, it's called the accretion circle. 
Here, gas and debris swirl around the center at incredible speeds. We are not in the accretion, the accretion disk. We are outside of that in our galaxy. But our galaxy spins at this dizzying speed of 130 miles per second. So the, the accretion disk spins faster than that. The center of the black hole moves even faster than that. It moves faster than the speed of light because light can't get through it. That's how we know it moves faster than the speed of light. The next layer, as you move inward, is the photon sphere. It's an area of space where gravity is so strong, and photons are, are light elements, uh, that the photons have to travel in orbits. The inner photon sphere moves in one direction, and the outer photon sphere moves in another. So th this is how a spiral works, right? Kind of able to move in two directions at once. And the spiral galaxy is the only kind of galaxy that can produce life. We are in such, so we think. So we are in such a galaxy. A spiral galaxy is necessary for producing life. And so that spiral movement is necessary to sustaining life. The photon sphere, you can see up in the upper left, at my left, left corner is Poehi, which is the first photograph taken by dozens of satellites around the world a couple of years ago of a black hole. And Poehi is a Hawaiian name that means the dark source of unending creation. It evokes for me a really maternal image. The event horizon is the next component, so moving to that sort of inner light circle. This is the outer boundary of the black hole itself, but it's inside the photon sphere. Here the gravitational pull is so strong that this is where light cannot escape, but if you were to stand on the edge of it, you would get sucked right in. This event horizon has been called the cosmic gatekeeper that protects the secrets of the universe. We can make guesses about them, but we really don't know what happens. We only know what happens to matter that gets close to it. We might colloquially call, in, in sort of layman's terms, the event horizon the edge or the precipice. It's the, the event horizon and the black hole, they grow in tandem, so they expand together and they, it's the exact right size to contain the information for all matter that will ever exist, ever. <laughs> the singularity is the next innermost, so that's like within the black hole, that's like the center of the black hole. This is thought to be the spot where an object's mass collapses to an infinitely dense extent. The matter that's absorbed by the black hole breaks apart into atoms again, you know, we're just made of atoms. But in that space, we're, we become literally just singular atoms again, not combined atoms. That's not nothing, by the way. So the black hole is not nothing. <laughs> Forgive the double negative. But it's, again, the germinating abyss of creation. The laws of physics break down here. No one on Earth really knows what happens beyond the singularity. Some scientists suspect that there's something on the other side, maybe something called a cosmic jet stream that shoots out debris and, and cosmic dust that may create something else. Initially, that debris doesn't have a form, but it, it's energy that heats up. And they experience, the, the atoms experience attraction again and begin to form matter again. When we talk about the Big Bang, we call it the singularity. It's the single point from which everything began. The way that scientists understand it, we, nothing would survive intact if we got pulled through the extreme gravity of a black hole. We would be stretched to like an impossible spaghetti thinness. It's not a diet plan. And broken into particulate. Black holes are sites of absolute destruction and absolute creation. They are the, Catherine Keller, not related to Timothy Keller, uses the word tihom. In, in Hebrew, it means abyss. It means, it means darkness. It means that, it, again, is this place of germinating constant creation. So it's the, the tihomic center of our galaxy. It breaks things down. It's the building blocks for all of life. A couple of things then to sort of add to your notes on black holes. <laughs> all you need to remember are black hole is a misnomer. It isn't empty space. A hole would be empty, but 
This one is so dense with atomic material that light can't escape it. That's one thing to remember. And I love this phrase that I uh, pulled from an article. It, it, it contains the most exotic and seductive secrets of space. They form from the remnants of a large star that has died in a supernova explosion. So they are, in essence, collapsed light. It's light collapsed in on itself. And everything we think we know about black holes is guesswork at this point. Guesswork. We can create theories based on what we know about energy that, or matter that happens as it nears, but we can't get close enough to really know. And you can't really you know, send someone like Bill out into space and say, go figure out what happens in a black hole and come back. It's, I think it's immoral. <laughs> he, might, he might get, yeah, you might blow apart. But one of the first lines in the Hebrew scriptures actually references this mystery. It says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This was before we had the scientific language to understand it. This is, poet. this is poetry. Metaphorically, black holes represent everything we don't know and usually, at least initially, feel scary. Any of us who have been in that proverbial dark night of the soul, I imagine each one of us at some point, can recall the feeling of being lost, scared, alone, longing for the night to end. But if you're here, you came through the other side of your own black hole, and you're changed. However small, However insignificant that change is, one thing was destroyed and another thing was created. We're mirrors of this cosmic creation. That's all. What happens out there is also happening in here. We are also black holes with endless abysses of creativity and also destruction. We are both. Both are in our nature. It's no accident then that we're wired toward pondering these things, toward trying to mimic this beautiful and terrible force of nature. We're held by the very same cosmic system that we're trying to make sense of. Curiosity about what is out there will lead to understanding about what's in here. It's a simultaneous exchange. It's true that we all come from this same moment in time, from that singularity, if you will. There's nothing to hold on to. Uh, perceptions that we are at the event, what did I say it was? Like the OS handle in a car? I can't say it in church, but go look it up. You know, the handle that you, stop, stop the car. It, we want something to hold on to. But maybe our task is just to relish that we are held. It's true that our differences should absolutely dissipate when we consider this common origin, the singularity of our, of our existence. But it's also true that the ways we become different ideologically create serious destructive problems for our well-being. There's this beautiful poem by Marie Howe. She wrote it uh, for a, I love this philosopher named Maria Popova. And she has an event where she gathers poets and writers together to kind of ponder the, the fascinations and mysteries of the universe. And Marie Howe wrote one called Singularity after Stephen Hawking. I was gonna show a video, but it was a little bit meandering, so I'll read it instead. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed or food or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom or home alone, pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you, remember? There was no nature, no them, no test to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up to what we were when we were ocean and before that to when sky was earth and animal was energy and rock was liquid and stars were space and space was not at all. Nothing. Before we became to believe, humans were so important. Before this awful loneliness. 
Can molecules recall it? What once was before anything happened? No I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun, only a tiny, tiny dot brimming with is. Is, is, is. All, everything, home. That's beautiful. So, um, she's a great poet. Our understanding of, of what we mean when we use the word God, this is why this is relevant, changes when our understanding of the physical universe changes. Mm. And um, so, I don't know if you read about the discovery that I saw about this week about the ribbons that are in the Milky Way. Did you see that? I the didn't. thing yeah. it was on one of the news feeds that cool. I got. And yeah. I thought that was curious. And I wonder. Do you have, or do people in the field of, that you're studying or close to that field, are, are they saying, oh, this is what we think is next? What, what? In terms what? of discoveries, I mean, we didn't know about black mm, holes mm, until, mm. you know, sometime, a short, relatively short time ago. So they, they saying, oh, we think this could be next on the agenda? I, you know, we're discovering at such an alarmingly fast rate I think it's one of the nexts, right? But we're still trying to figure out those first like radiation waves from the original, from the Big Bang. I mean, you know, that we're still trying to figure out the red shift. Mm -hmm. We're still on what Hubble first saw in his telescope. You know, I mean, all of these amazing things are coming at us at once and who knows what will get our attention. But these are, again, they, they hold the, the cosmic secrets, the seductive cosmic secrets. Mm -hmm. so. And every culture has a story about it. Yes. Yeah, so in some ways, we've always intuited this. We've, mm -hmm. in, we've intuited this singularity. We've intuited this kind of, this deep abyss of cosmic creation. We were wired towards it. Mm -hmm. I think that, to me, is, the, is a great revelation. We're wired towards trying to figure it out and therefore trying to figure ourselves out. I think one of the things that is inherent in the way that the Western mind works is to assume that the story that we have is the most correct, the better, yeah. the best, yeah. or you know, whatever. and it's a danger of science too. A friend of mine and I were talking. Actually, Jaime Gonzalez was here in this room with me one time. We were talking about this yesterday. It is so dangerous to lean too hard on scientism and too hard on religionism, if you will. Right? Mm -hmm. We we can't get to these binaries where the two can't speak to each other. Mm -hmm. No. So I, I, I call this talk today um, because in our work together, Holly has um, given me the title of title maker. Yeah, yes, you're the title maker. I'm the title maker. And I call this talk today the journey of radical amazement. And um, I got that phrase from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And uh, some of you remember that his daughter was here speaking recently at, at Beth, Beth Yeshurun. And um, Rabbi Heschel said that radical amazement is the appropriate response to an experience of the sacred. And he said this in writing about the very well-known parable of Moses encountering God in the desert in the bush that was not, the burning bush that was not consumed. And um, God from the bush calls Moses. Moses gets near. God from the bush says, take off your shoes for the ground where you're standing is holy ground. Now you got a paradox right there. Sacred dirt, <laughs> right? Human, humus, we're from dirt. All that being connected. And um, so Abraham says, who the heck are you? Um, that's my translation. And God says, it's none of your business. I will be what I will be. And theologians have been puzzling about that response since it was ever given. But the Jews got it right. God is unnameable, unspeakable. And, and um, so this is what Heschel wrote. The insights that connect us to God come not on the level of discursive thinking, but on the level of wonder and radical amazement. In the depth of awe, 
in our sensitivity to the mystery, in our awareness of the ineffable. And it is in living in this space of radical amazement, I believe, that transformation can occur. When you're in territory that you control, not much can happen. But when that is given up, then other things can happen. Now, my concern is that our, our culture is growing more and more unable to distinguish between the genuine and junk. And uh, as we are seeing, we are being led into the belief that there are easy solutions to very, very difficult problems. When uh, asked why Texas was banning certain books from public schools. We have a librarian in the room. I mean, from librarian. No, library, we have a librarian in the room. From libraries in public schools. Yeah. The legislature said, we want to protect our children. So what I was trying to say is we have a librarian in the room who's trying to protect our books. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. First time. Holly was his teacher, by the way. Second time, but we haven't seen each other in a while. Yeah. <laughs> so. If you want to protect, you know, the, the legislature says we're trying to protect our children. And my response to that is nonsense. If you want to protect children, ban assault weapons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Comedian Wanda Sykes, who can be raw, ha has one of the most brilliant lines I've ever heard in her recent stand-up. She said, until a drag queen walks into a school and beats eight kids to death with a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think you're focusing on the wrong stuff. Um, reader advisory warned she did not use the word stuff. <laughs> now, it's becoming more and more and more apparent to me, although I've said this uh, years ago, and it's not original with me, that if we're going to make it as people of faith, we're going to have to become mystics. And... Um, not only in the way we have a daily spiritual practice, which you all do, but also in the way that we live in an alert, awake, engaged, ready to respond with love and honesty and commitment to a freedom for all that opens up a safe and possible future for everybody. Human life, our culture, depends on our living this way. One of Jesus' opening statements to those who were attracted to him was, you got to be willing to give some stuff up. He put it pretty starkly. He said, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, and sisters, and yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple." Now, of course, Jesus is talking to people who live in first century Palestine. To us, I think he would put it like this. You must come to hate your myopic view of reality. You must turn from the illusions that have given you comfort. You must stretch your minds and imaginations to see that you are connected to a much larger world and a much larger family than you might so far have imagined possible. Now, this is my concern with people like Timothy Keller and their ilk. They are stuck in a worldview that's killing us. Wow. No, I didn't say that too strongly. I'm like, let me see, how do I respond to that. <laughs> Many of us live divided lives. I think we have an illusion of control that we're standing on the event horizon, if you will, of our own lives, looking into the depths, deciding whether or not we're going to jump in. I think it's pretty normal to want to have something like certainty to hold on to. It, could, it can be as easy as our routines. They give us some sense of grounding and there's a both-and-ness to this. 
yes, we need something to hold on to, and there's nothing to hold on to. I'll hold on to that. Uh, hold on to that. Okay. Yeah. Certainty, though, keeps us from exposing our vulnerabilities, and dare I say, makes us seem less human. When we are vulnerable, we are exposing our humanity. I wonder, though, if we aren't actually on the event horizon, but already in this black hole, in this constantly churning, constantly moving center of creation and destruction. Both and. I wonder if thinking we have control over where we stand isn't the illusion. I wonder if from within the black hole, if there's no control about being in it, that we don't have some measure of choice about what we do with it. That's where, that's where our human destiny comes in. So here's a pop culture example. My family loves Star Wars. My youngest son is like a Star Wars encyclopedia and was rattling off so much this morning. He goes, Mommy, are you listening? I was like, no, I'm actually not. <laughs> I, 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 he, he literally just can, they love it. So my youngest son and I often, and the rest of our family just rolls their eyes and walks away, we debate Darth Vader a lot. He's the most evil guy in the galaxy next to Satan and Voldemort. And Darth came up at the dinner table. I call him Darth, most people call him Vader. I think Darth kind of reduces him a little bit. Um, <laughs> Darth came up at the dinner table this week and Evan, my youngest, was again defending him. But mommy, he said he was sorry at the end and he saved Luke. So he thinks that this moment where he, he sacrifices his life for his son Luke is evidence of Darth's innate goodness, that, that all the rest of the billions of galaxies that he destroyed don't matter, that this one thing makes him good. It is one thing that he did that was good, <laughs> but my debate is I'm not sure if that makes him good. Josh made the point that he did stay in the conversation this time, and he said, Evan, do you know what Darth is afraid of? He struggled his whole life to conquer his fear of fear. And to conquer it, he basically just went gangbusters, killing everyone and everything around him so that they could never leave him or hurt him. That's how he conquered his fear. I don't know if there are Jungians in galaxies far, far away. I imagine the equivalent is Yoda. But he speaks in parables and paradoxes. <laughs> but Darth did not transform his fear. He was destroyed, and he destroyed things with it. I just learned something new about this supervillain that came out at the dinner table. He was born of a virgin and to an unwed mother. He has no father. He was mentored by this master Jedi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he was trained to be a great warrior, thought as he, when he was a young child of as the light of the world. Pretty interesting parallel to our friend Jesus, uh, the forces of dark and light are born of the same circumstances. And Darth just took a different turn because of the choices he made. There's so many things we cannot control in life, and probably most things, actually. The death of a loved one sends us into a dark hole of grief, the loss of a job, recovery from addiction, trauma. But the more conscious we become of the black holes that really are always operating, the more likely we are to transform destructive events into creative opportunities, the more patient we can be when everything is dark. These two require one another, the creation, the destruction, the dark, and the light. They're in constant tension with each other. And one cosmological theory is that this orchestra of stars and planets and meteors and comets and all the beautiful things that we get to witness may have emerged from the debris of a black hole, that it came through the black hole as atoms and particulate and reformed. So it is both our origin and our destiny. Our own galaxy is orbiting around a giant black hole and will eventually be absorbed into it. We are both in it and also outside of it. There is an article in Discovery Magazine a few years back and it toys with this idea that there might be a universe inside every black hole. Perhaps ours is just biding its time until it gives birth to another one. 
you know that Native American story about what holds the earth up? It's a, on a, the back of a giant turtle. Mm -hmm. And someone asked, well, then what holds that turtle up? Another turtle, another turtle, another turtle. It's just turtles all the way down. Well, the black hole theory states that we might live in a universe within a black hole, within a universe, within a black hole, within a universe, within a black hole. So it's just black holes all the way down. It's mind-bending. It's, yeah, like try and just wrap our arms around that. We can't. So I digress. I'm getting into a bit of a black hole about black holes. But the parallels between Darth Vader and Jesus, they represent dark and light two sides of the same coin, or to extend today's metaphor, both aspects of the black hole. Well, I totally commend my son's willingness to forgive Darth Vader, what, what, a, what a gem. <laughs> I also want him to know that we make choices every single day that send us a little more toward the light or a little more toward the dark, and many of us might be operating on that razor's edge, right between the two. So Jesus could have been like Darth Vader, and Darth Vader could have been like Jesus. And if I offend you comparing these two, um, Darth Vader and Jesus, let's consider the relationship between Jesus and Judas, also two sides of the same coin. This will never not touch me again, double negative, forgive me. But what does Jesus do when he learns that Judas betrays him? He receives him for a kiss, and he calls him friend. He incorporates the darkness. He no longer fears it. That's what Darth Vader couldn't do. Until the very last moment. <laughs> so during the pandemic, um, I discovered, or I was discovered by, depends on your point of view, the writings of Judy Canato. Um, Judy Canato was a uh, Roman Catholic spiritual director, teacher, educator, who concentrated her work on the relationship between science and um, religion or spirituality. I read this book, Fields of Compassion, How the New Cosmology is Transforming Spiritual Life. And I want to say one of the things that Holly taught me um, among many, is that it's not the, it, it's incorrect to call it the new cosmology. There's nothing new about the cosmology. What's new is our discovery of what is the cosmology is all about. Our new understanding of the cosmology is a more accurate way to put it. I was so smitten with this woman that um, I immediately got on the internet to see if I could get her to come here to be an endowment speaker. Um, but I discovered that she, too, had died from a very rare kind of cancer in 2011 at the age of 62. Now, she is like Timothy Keller. She is highly educated, gracious, compassionate, excellent teacher, excellent educator, excellent spiritual director. And where they differ is in this. Um, Keller says, I've got this stuff figured out. Kanata says, you can't figure this stuff out. So what Holly is saying is that every effort we make to get our minds around the energy field we call the cosmos fails us. Nevertheless, I and a lot of other people I know who try to teach this stuff keep trying. Uh, it's like um, you cannot teach what non-duality is, but I keep trying. But this is what Judy Canotto writes in her effort. She says, how many grains of sand does it take to represent the stars in the known universe. Known is a really important word here. <laughs> yeah. And she said, try to imagine railroad hopper cars. Each hopper car is filled with sand. <clears throat> the hopper cars pass you at a rate of one per second. 
for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It would take three years for all the hopper cars to pass. And folks, that's just from what we can see. There's 95% out there, they say, that we can't see. That's amazing. That's radically amazing. That's radical amazement, and we live in that field of energy. So in case that you have missed what Holly said, and I counted three times so far she said it, The difference between what Timothy Keller and his ilk say and what we are trying to teach, and by the way, there are a host of really, really smart people in the camp that I hope we represent. Judy Canotto would be one of them. Ilya Delio would certainly be one. I'm reading um, Ilya's new book. Have you started that? I haven't. It's hard, mm. you know, making everything new. I think it's the, the, the title of it. And, and, and it's about her understanding of Catholicity, how the whole thing fits, fits together. She's trying to um, reclaim that word. Timothy Keller says, here's something you can hold on to. And what we're trying to teach is, Here's something that holds you. Now, one point puts the ego in the driver's seat, and the other, like information about black holes, completely dethrones the ego, which I think is very in keeping with the teaching of Jesus. So one of the major points I think this time today is about is no matter what your religious convictions are, and it is my belief, it is helpful to have some, but hold them loosely, because you never know when new data is going to come from the cosmos that makes you think, oh, there's another way to look at this. It's clear that those who developed or who are developed a kind of seeing and awareness that we've been talking about, that making the, living, the human journey spiritually and the, the spiritual journey humanly is one we make in the midst of a mystery that is not only deeper and broader than ourselves, but also deeper and broader than we can possibly grasp. So we're in the black hole. It will pull us in. It will change us. And in order for that change to happen, a certain kind of death also has to happen. In Jungian terms, it would be death to the ego that seduces, controls, and causes fear. There are examples of black holes. These things happen all the time all around us. The caterpillar turns into ooze. It becomes what are called imaginal cells, perfectly named, I think. And it would not be recognizable inside of the cocoon. It, it, I thought I did a good thing and saved a caterpillar from the freeze this last winter. And I put it in a bucket with some milkweed and it made a cocoon. But after a couple of days, that cocoon fell and it splatted open and there was nothing recognizable in the cocoon. It was ooze. And that ooze becomes a butterfly. That is a black hole. We're headed towards certain and inevitable death. But the really cool thing is that we are also headed towards becoming part of some other life that we can't yet imagine. I, didn't Judy Canato write a book called Radical Amazement? Mm -hmm. I haven't read it, but I'm going to guess that this is part of it. That staying open to the incredible mystery of being alive and being open to transformation requires engagement with the black holes. I'm going to close with a story attributed to either the Cherokee or to the Lenape people. It's been shared in here before, probably by both of us at one time or another. But like all parables, it can land differently each time. It's a story about a grandfather and his grandson who are having a conversation. And the grandfather explains to his grandson that there are 
two wolves fighting within him. It's an image that serves as a metaphor of this man's inner turmoil. And the conversation goes like this. The grandfather says, I have a fight going on in me. It's taking place between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, false pride, superiority, and ego. The grandfather looks at the grandson, who's a little confused, and says, the other embodies positive emotions. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, compassion, and faith. Both wolves are fighting to the death. The same fight is going on in you and inside every other person, too. The grandson took a moment to reflect, and at last he looks up at his grandfather and asks, well, which wolf will win? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. I love that story. Mm -hmm. So I want to close with a prayer that I got from Judy Kanata. And um, I don't remember which one of her books. I've read everything she's written now. Um, and I, this prayer is written in the first person, but I've made it communal. It goes, incomprehensible holy mystery. So often we are blind to your self-communication. So often we fail to see your love that is in plain view. Help us to see. Release us from our inattentional blindness and allow us to truly see what's before us. May we release ourselves and others from judgment and may we discover in the silence who we are in you and who you are in us. Enable us to grow into a maturity that embraces the world and participates co-creatively in the life of the world. May all creation benefit from our practice of meditation. And I would add, may all creation benefit from these times we spend together in ordinary life. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.